We're going to talk about the judgment of the Lord <laughs> and the wrath of God. So, I didn't write this stuff, by the way. Uh, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, so I will read what he has to say, starting in chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who have died, those who have fallen asleep, so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, and put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, as indeed you are doing. Paul changes gears here and takes up a very specific topic, that of believers, members of the community who have died. And um, it has appeared to many commentators that um, this is perhaps a sign of how much Paul was focused on the return of Jesus soon, um, and perhaps also reflective of the fact that his time in Thessalonica was cut short. But apparently he had not told them that um, what, what happened if and when believers died. Um, it's possible. Uh, it's also knowing that Paul has been doing mission for 15 years it's, um, and been in a church for a long time in Antioch with others. It strikes me as just a little, uh, a bit of a stretch to think that he's never dealt with death in the Christian community or thought about it. But for whatever reason, the Thessalonians need to be reassured about this. Um, perhaps some of them have died, and this calls into question, have they missed out? If they're not here with us when Christ returns, will they miss out on what we've been waiting for in hope? Um, John Barclay, uh, in an article from a couple decades ago on this passage, also wonders whether the death of Christians might not have been seen as um, evidence 
seen by their neighbors as evidence of the fact that they were in fact dishonoring the gods and suffering the due penalty for such. Um, and whether the community itself might have wondered, gosh, you know, we've become believers and yet some of us have died. Um, isn't, isn't Christ supposed to be the Lord over life and death? How does that make sense? Um, it, it doesn't appear that people have been killed um, directly for their faith, um, and that's really an argument from silence. But Paul speaks about their sufferings and persecutions. He hasn't spoken about them laying down their lives for the Lord. So some in the community have died, and Paul takes up the topic. Um, but this is still connected to what's come before, and um, one of the ways it is is that Paul is still talking about the ministry of the members of the community to one another. So notice that back up in verse 9, he refers to the fact that they have been taught by God to love one another. And even though he's in the position of urging them to love one another more, to live quietly, to work with their hands, to remain um, faithful and honorable in their um, marriages, Paul doesn't think that he's the only one who's offering this encouragement. In fact, they encourage each other. And both of these sections we're looking at, uh, chapter 4, verse 18, and chapter 5, verse 11, they both end with a call for the members of the community to encourage one another, to remind one another, to comfort one another with the words and the teachings that Paul is giving them or reminding them about. In fact, it's quite emphatic in, in chapter 5, verse 11. Encourage one another. Each of you build up the other, just as you are doing. And um, it strikes me that one of the things that, that um, I left out in the last hour in talking about this call to holiness um, is the fact that for Paul, this is something we do together. It's not I shouldn't say it's not simply. It is first and foremost God's work in us, but it's not simply God's work in us as individuals. The Holy Spirit is given, he says, ace humas, into your midst, to you. You collectively are the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Your bodies individually are the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's um, a sense in which we're doing life together. And that does seem to me to be um, a crucial part of recapturing a, a vital sense of Christian community and of, um, of actually succeeding in the long run in growing in love and in faithfulness to Christ is that we have to do this together. Um, we are beset by too many challenges, by our own weaknesses. Um, we're not meant to do the Christian life on our own. And we live in a culture that's increasingly um, offering us other stories or no story at all that's holding out other sources of, of joy and meaning. Um, and so all the more we need to develop an alternative um, community, an alternative story that has the plausibility of being lived out in one another's lives. So Paul has been emphasizing his own example, but he expects that the members of the community will continue to be examples one for another. And... Um, Again, all I can offer in this kind of a session, I, I imagine all that you really expect, is I can give you some, some ideas about the ancient text, some thoughts about handles on it, but actually interpreting this text, actually doing theology with the text happens in, in our communities, in our lives. Um, how exactly to bring this into being, into embodiment, how God will work, takes myriad 
forms because it requires particular people in particular contexts. And, um, and yet, um, Paul doesn't shy away from offering the big story as well to make sense of all of the smaller ones. Um, I, I was also just looking with a concordance really quickly. Um, Paul speaks remarkably often about the coming of the Lord throughout the letter from the very beginning. Um, he's reminded us that we are waiting for Jesus who saves us from the wrath that is coming. He's talked about um, the uh, God who calls you into his kingdom and glory, which is both present and yet future. He's um, urged um, a life of, of holiness and of love, um, precisely that we might be blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so again, here the topic is the return of Jesus Christ. In speaking about anger, wrath, judgment, um, I, I was going to shy away from this a little bit more than I will now, but since um, we, several of us were talking just now about how this is really a difficult topic for, for us moderns to take up, for preachers to take up, how do we make sense of God's wrath? Again, it's, it's language that doesn't have much of a purchase in our own culture, and when it does, it's usually a memory of pretty distorted ways of talking about God's wrath. Um, it's easier for me to think of um, fanatical protesters holding up signs, you know, God hates gays, uh, at funerals as a kind of, you know, is this what talking about the God, the God of wrath does? Is this the kind of community it creates? But that's, that's not what's happening in this text, I think. And um, instead, God's wrath is part of this bigger story of God as the creator who is determined at the cost of God's own self-giving in Jesus to put things right. And that putting things right involves judgment. It involves judgment on sin. It involves judgment on oppression. It involves a righteous wrath. And there is such a thing, at least when it comes to God. Um, God hates that which destroys the creation God loves. God hates that which ruins the lives of people made in God's image. God hates that which has um, brought the righteous one, the holy one, Jesus Christ, to the cross. And yet God is the one who takes that wrath on himself. Um, God's wrath is not opposed to on this way of thinking, but is actually intrinsic to God's love. In that God loves our flourishing, God hates that which um, diminishes that flourishing. And God steps in. So that um, where we find the wrath of God most clearly portrayed, God is the one taking that wrath on himself in the person of Christ. And Christ the one who willingly, lovingly, in union with the Father, in the power of the Spirit, gives himself as an offering for us that we might have life. Um, but the early Christian preaching sees there between the resurrection and vindication of Christ in the resurrection and Christ coming again to rule justly, a time in which people are called to repent, are given an opportunity to turn to God, in which God's Spirit is active, opening people's hearts to the good news, turning them. Um, and they also see a time when Christ will come and will establish justice. And there is both a promise and a threat. Um, 
I, I find myself more comfortable with the kind of language that someone like C.S. Lewis adopts um, in continuity with much earlier Christian tradition that seems to take both take the edge off but also up the ante for me. Lewis famously says, in the end, God says to each one of us, your will be done. Unless we have said to God, your will be done. And his picture of of God's wrath is actually being given what we want, which is to be our own gods and to live in splendid isolation from God and other people, to live in complete alienation. Um, I think you, you get a hint of this in the church fathers who speak about God's love as a consuming fire that when embraced lightens our lives and when rejected consumes everything in its path. Um, to reject that love is to reject everything that is good. It's to kill ourselves or to embrace death. And that God would allow creatures to embrace death ultimately. To say no ultimately seems to be one of those, um, what Karl Barth would, would call an impossible possibility. It appears to be impossible when we look at our own story and know that when we were enemies, Christ died for us. That if God had not opened our hearts and turned us, we never would have cried out in love and obedience. God has sent the Spirit into our hearts, and that Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. And so we join the Spirit's testimony that we are children of God. And yet, Scripture also speaks of human beings that consistently turn away and reject God's good purpose. Um, Luke has a phrase talking about some of the leaders of Israel in Jesus' day. They rejected God's purpose for themselves. And that God allows that possibility seems impossible when we look at God's amazing, unquenchable love for us. And yet there it is in Scripture. And so this is one of these places where I would certainly feel um, bound to the text, even if I don't know how to put everything all together. Um, one of the, for me personally, um, an article that, that has helped me and that I've, I've referred students to a number of different times is um, a piece that appeared in First Things by Richard John Newhouse. Um, and I can't even remember now the title of the article, but I could find it if you're interested. But he, he asks, now from the standpoint of a convert to Catholicism, he asks the question of whether hell is populated or not. He says, as a Catholic, it's dog. I can't not preach hell. That's that's doctrine that's given to us. Um, in the same way that I can't not preach heaven. That's dogma. But he says that the church doesn't tell us whether either heaven or hell is populated. And then he corrects himself. Well, except for the Blessed Virgin that we know is in heaven. Um, but otherwise, our deep hope is that heaven will be full. And similarly, a gospel-shaped hope is that hell will be empty. But we're not given that. We're not given that. We're given a hope or an encouragement perhaps to hope, but not the freedom to teach that. I actually think Paul had less, much less of a hang-up teaching about wrath. Um, and again, this may reflect not only his cultural setting, but also the fact that he and the churches he loves are suffering deeply. And so God's justice is, is absolutely central for him as a as a problem uh, and as a hope. The God I hope in is God who cares about the oppressed, who 
hates evil, who will destroy everything that ruins this creation. Um, another author who's gotten me thinking about this in a slightly different way is John Howard Yoder. In his writing on, write, many writings on Christian pacifism, he distinguishes more than 20 types of pacifism. Yoder's really into definitions. And, um, and I think rightly, you know, he, he says, we, if we don't know what we're talking about, we aren't yet thinking or talking clearly about it. But Yoder makes the, the strong argument that for him, for a, a pacifism that is modeled on Christ's willingness to suffer even death for the sake of the enemy, that that makes no sense if God doesn't ultimately vindicate that kind of self-giving love. If God is not the God who triumphs over evil precisely through a willingness to embrace death out of love for others, then, then this form of pacifism makes no sense at all. So he has an essay entitled, it's a question, Peace Without Eschatology? And his answer is no. Not, not a Christ-shaped hope. Because he will go on to argue, Christians don't adopt nonviolent resistance to evil. They don't refuse to take vengeance. They don't refuse to um, return evil for evil because they think it's going to work because it's an effective strategy. They do it because this is Christ's call. And Yoder says, for Christians, the connection between our obedience and God's kingdom is not cause and effect, it's cross and resurrection. And in the resurrection, God defeats death and raises Christ and in so doing, God judges the evil, the cosmic and the human, the personal and the systemic evil that put Jesus on the cross. So Paul is writing to a community under tremendous pressure, and central to their hope is sharing in the kingdom and the glory of God, a kingdom, a reign that is truly just, and that has as its flip side uh, a warning that... Um, just reign of God will mean the end of injustice. And um, <clears throat> so um, it wouldn't be wrong to, um, to call this a kind of an apocalyptic or semi-dualistic um, way of looking at the world. In fact, um, there are pretty stark dualisms in this very passage that we're reading. Day and not night, light and not darkness. It's language you maybe have run into looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls, the children of light versus the children of darkness, or, or perhaps you've encountered it in the Gospel of John, where there are these similar dualisms. But Paul's writing to a community that knows itself to be rescued by Jesus' death for us, by God's action in sending his son and raising him from the dead. And so the coming of the Lord is a cause not for terror, but for hope. And this is another reason why, at least for me, passages like this are um, troubling, because since I've been young and heard these passages, at least read in the lectionary, they've scared the crud out of me. Um, and depending on whether you're um, looking at the, the Left Behind novels or um, singing uh, I Wish We'd All Been Ready together with Larry Norman or you know whatever era you're in, um, <laughs> yeah, thank you. This can be really frightening. In fact, uh, I, well, this is totally random, but I'm trying to give you material for Merkel. Um One of one of my friends, 
that was in ministry together with shared with me that sent that crucial point in his um, coming to know Christ was um, reading the book of Revelation as a college student when he and a friend were high on marijuana. <laughs> he said the combination of the drug and the, and the apocalyptic visions really got him seriously seeking after God. So <laughs> the book's done that, that book's done that to many of us without the, the aid of, um, of narcotic sub, or drug substances. Anyway, um, but Paul's, Paul's language here is full of hope. He's not using this as a text to beat the Thessalonians on the head, shape up. Instead, it's actually encourage each other because look what is coming. Look who is coming. Our Lord is coming. Um, and what we look forward to, and it's in both of these passages, is being with the Lord. Paul famously has very little to say about heaven or the life to come. But that we are with the Lord is a constant theme from 1 Thessalonians into 1 and 2 Corinthians into Philippians into Romans. We will be with him. He's the Lord of the living and the dead. And so whether we die or whether we live, we are with the Lord. That's the hope. And then Paul adds to that, we're going to be with each other. So yes, grieve those who have died. But don't grieve like those who have no hope. The famous little book, Good Grief by a Lutheran pastor that, that starts off from this. Grieve, but not as those without hope. Do grieve, but grieve in hope of our resurrection when Christ returns. Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. Salvation itself is something yet ahead of us. That's another reason for the hope and the expectation. We have a foretaste of what it will mean to be free from sin, to be in complete communion with God and with one another, to be filled with love, um, love that is all-encompassing and overflowing. And this is God's destiny for us makes sense why God's will for us then is holiness because in fact that is our destiny to know God to share life with God and we obtain salvation he says through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us I I find it um, just to, to sort of go back and make sure I can hear scripture when I've read it over and over again I, I find I fall back on stuff that I learned from intervarsity about you know underlining uh, and circling and, and just noting the way the words run. But one of the things I find really illuminating for Paul, uh, studying Paul especially, is to look at how he chooses to describe God and Jesus and believers. So if you follow just through 1 Thessalonians, we have, um, we're waiting for God's Son. Flip over here. To wait for his Son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. So, Jesus, Son of God, seated with God in heaven, raised from the dead, the one who rescues, who delivers us. Um, later on, we find out about, uh, we're, we're imitators of Jesus who endured persecution. But here, it's Jesus who died for us. The one who's coming back as judge 
is the one who laid down his life for his sheep. So what would be any, there would be no reason to have anything other than expectation and welcome for this one to come. So encourage each other and build each other up. Because Paul's also a realist. He's praying that they will be blameless when the Lord comes. He knows that, in fact, the Christian life is a mix of obedience and disobedience, of success and failure, of closeness to God in times of walking away. We need to hear from one another the words over and over again. Um, The one who is coming for us is the one who died for us. The one who is coming again is the one whose love for us was so great that he'd rather die than live without us. Um, And so let's pursue here and now fellowship with this Lord. Let's not grow weary. Let's not be discouraged. Um, The actual details are, are, these can be interesting. I feel like, um, especially in light of some of the popular preaching and books of the last few decades, it's almost more of a service to say what Paul's not talking about here. Um, He speaks here famously about uh, believers being caught up into the air. Um, Actually, this is one of these places, again, I'm just thinking of a a short conversation the very first day. Paul's language about Jesus' return has a lot of overlap with uh, the so-called apocalyptic discourses in in Mark 13 and in the Gospel of Matthew and in Luke. Um, It's full of Old Testament images. It appears to go back to, it's remembered as going back to Jesus' own teaching. Um, But the Lord will descend uh, with a word of command, the archangels call, the sound of God's trumpet, and this is when the dead in Christ will rise. There's a close parallel in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. Those who've died in Christ will be raised with Christ. Here Paul says, first, they will be raised. Then those of us who are still left will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. This is the, really the only place in Scripture where you can get anything like what since the 19th century has been thought of as the rapture, being caught up into the air. Um, there's a, a, a really unpersuasive reading of the command in Revelation 4 to the seer, come up here. And some interpreters, this is a, a coded reference to the church uh, coming up into heaven. But, but what's going on here actually is a picture that would be very familiar to the Thessalonians. When a dignitary comes to visit the city, when the king shows up to visit your city, the dignitaries, the local dignitaries, the populace, go out of the gates and they meet the person on the road and they accompany them back in. It's like our equivalent of rolling out the red carpet. When the President of the United States or the Secretary of State flies into another country, they're at the airport. The lines of limousines and the red carpet and the dignitaries and the soldiers, it's a way of honoring the visit. And I think this is obviously, yeah, I would would go on to say, this is obviously the image Paul's working with. Um, You just see this paralleled over and over again in Jewish and Greco-Roman texts. This is what's expected. So that implies actually that the Lord is returning to earth, not to some heavenly cloudy place. But Paul actually isn't really interested in going any further. His point is we will be from that moment on together with the Lord. Wherever the Lord is, there we are as well. And we who are still alive when the Lord comes 
will actually take second place to those who've died because they get to be raised first. Chapter 5 um, in, in our Bibles, I mean, these chapter divisions you know are later, but Paul changes focus slightly to the question of when. And he says, well, you don't need us to write to you about times and seasons. So perhaps he has already spoken about this with them. And here he uses the image of the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night. And I think there's also been uh, a pretty common misunderstanding of what's going on here. Um, there's close, reference, or close resemblance to a parable that Jesus told about the householder needing to be ready. The householder knew what time the thief would dig in through the wall. He'd been ready. You should always watch. You should always pray. Um, as in that Larry Norman song, right, there's all these believers who are surprised by the coming of the Lord. And that's the image that certainly scared me. Um, but actually Paul denies that the coming of the Lord will surprise us. He says, you are not to be. In verse 4, you are not in darkness so that that day would surprise you like a thief. It's going to surprise those people, those people who say, peace and security, peace and security. Um, who's Paul talking about? I wish, I wish I knew, and there could be some particular situation he's looking at. Um, there's an echo here of Jeremiah, as Jeremiah is preaching repentance and also the coming of God's wrath in the person of the Babylonians, and um, he's getting very little traction. Uh, he warns, you're saying peace and security, and God is bringing judgment. Um, Paul may be thinking of Jesus' lament over Jerusalem, if only you had known what makes for peace, but now those are coming who will destroy your walls, even though that's still in the future. I think it's remembered as a prophecy of Jesus. But it could also be that he's simply looking more broadly. He's living, he's working right now at least, in a very peaceful part of the Roman Empire. For a century or more, Rome has had this area under pretty tight control. There aren't any troops stationed in Achaia or Macedonia. The trade routes are open, business is booming, crime is down, peace and security. Rome is guaranteeing our freedom. Rome is guaranteeing public order. It's into that situation, Paul says, that the Lord will come with the surprise of a thief in the night. But you are not in darkness. You know what's coming. So don't be afraid of this. Instead, it's the exhortation, recognize that because you are children of the light, you can live in the day. So live in the day. Be sober. Be watchful. Let's not fall asleep. Instead, and here now is a really nice link back to the very beginning of the letter. Nice link to the song that Sonny shared with us this morning. Not only is Paul thanking God for their faith, love, and hope, but now he says, put it on like armor. Put on the breastplate of faith and love. Put on as a helmet the hope of salvation. Arm yourselves with faith, hope, and love. So yes, the Lord is coming again. For us, it's already day. And so live in the day. Live in faith. Live in hope. Live in love. Be sober, be watchful, but be bold. And encourage one another. Build each other up as indeed you are still doing. This, um, this letter 
offers me another picture of our own time as um, we definitely have plenty of narratives of decline, national narratives of decline, global narratives of decline. Those of us in the main line are used to seeing the figures come out year after year about how many members we're losing, we see how much influence we're losing. Um, and I don't want to minimize that, but I do want to say that um, by reading this letter to Thessalonica and recognizing that this is also God's word to us, that in fact, God is offering us another story. And it's not one of inevitable decline. It's one of hope. Our hope is that Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, is indeed the just judge coming again, not to bring us wrath and judgment and condemnation, but to bring us the fullness of the salvation that he's already won for us. And that our calling is a joyful calling of increasing intimacy with God through loving one another intensely, through encouraging each other, through a, a good work to do, a work that is prompted by faith and motivated by love and oriented toward hope. Because God is a God of hope. God is a God of hope. Um, I'll just share one other thing. Um, it's actually, I realize as I'm teaching you all, I can't, I couldn't stand listening to the recordings. They don't, no, most of us don't like our own voices and I, I really don't have the patience to listen to myself twice. But everything I'm saying, I'm preaching to myself. And I, I imagine Paul also in talking about the way he acted among them in exhorting them to grow in love is also doing this to remind himself this is also the race he's running. But I'm deeply encouraged as well by the conversations that I'm having around the edges with many of you. And I'm, I'm deeply thankful for Anne's ministry with us. And I realize um, as I go back into my context, I'm thinking just right now of a, a friend of mine who's the dean of Duke Chapel, Luke Powery, who has written compellingly about lament and hope, um, but with whom I need to talk every few weeks for me so that I can hear him say, God is a God of hope. I need that reminder. It's not enough for me to just get it from a text or from a recording. I need live people in my life who know me, who know the situation, who share the situation, and who can say, have hope. So, you are called as leaders, as pastors, and yet you're not alone. And a huge part of any of this kind of communal life working is that each one takes on and increasingly takes on the role of encouraging and building up the other. So um, I hope you will be encouraged. I hope you will also think about how to multiply that ministry of encouragement within the congregations, within the settings that you are called to serve. Ten minutes or so for comments, questions. Um, We'll use the microphones again, but let me invite you, please. Jeff? Jeff and then Jim over there. You were talking about um, God's wrath being tied in with his love and, and actually hope in Paul. And I used to read uh, the Psalms where it talks about you read Psalm 96 earlier, you know, yeah. God comes to judge the earth. 
And I never understood why they were super excited about that (laughs) until, I I don't know who I read, but I I ran across it where they said the reason Israel was excited for God to come judge is it's like the the widow in the parable with the unrighteous mm. judge, right? Mm. She, she's seeking justice against someone who's oppressing her. And so Israel, being oppressed, was looking forward to God coming and setting everything right. And that really changed how I think about the wrath of God and mm. judgment day, it, seeing it less as something to be afraid of and instead seeing it as the day everything gets put right. And that's yeah. just really changed the way I thought about it. I just Yeah, thank you. That. That's really helpful. You're right. That, I mean, that psalm, the... All of creation is rejoicing at the coming of the just judge. Um, this isn't quite exactly on the point, but it, it sorry, it's popping in my head and I have the floor. So, um, <laughs> no, St. Augustine um, has some beautiful homilies on 1 John, and um, he, he takes up a, a question that um, a careful reader of these letters notices that John keeps talking about loving the brothers and sisters. And so he says, well, is John falling short of Jesus who talks about loving enemies? And he says, well, no, by by no means. Um, Why does Jesus tell us to love our enemies? Is it so they remain enemies? No, that wouldn't be loving them. So they become our brothers and sisters. So when we love our enemies, we're loving that potential brother or sister. We're desiring God's good in their life. And I guess where that fits for me is that to, to talk about and even to look forward to God's just judgment is not incompatible desperately desiring that even those who are committing injustice, those who are oppressing us, those who are enemies, would experience not wrath, but the love and reconciliation that God has provided in Christ. And um, one of the things that struck me about um, Martin Luther King and his, his um, followers' commitment to nonviolence was not just they felt that as Christians they ought to do good in the face of evil, but they thought this would be the way to win back the people who were hatefully, spitefully using them. That, that their nonviolence could be a, method, a, a, a means toward God healing the souls of those doing the violence. And I, I'm just stunned at that. And I, I'm the only other parallel I can see is this, and, and King is deeply rooted in the Christian tradition that says, yeah, there's no joy in the death of an enemy or in the judgment of the enemy. There's a desire that that one be saved. But if things need to be put right, then one isn't loving someone who's in opposition to God by saying peace and security. It's no, actually, <laughs> turn to the one who is your life. Jim? Yeah, I know I should probably know the answer to this, but I'm just curious why there's not more mentioned in Paul's writings about the life and teachings of Jesus and maybe you have an essay you could point me toward or or a theory yourself of what he assumes where people got all their information about the life and teachings of Jesus is Paul saying oh I taught them all that stuff when I was there then when I went back and wrote my letter they had that or there's some written you know because the gospels and they come in you know the written documents we think a little bit later but any any comment yeah yeah no that's a that's a real it's a perennial puzzle so um, I'll try to think about whether there's a, a good place to send you. I mean, there, there, are, there definitely are um, kind of maximalist accounts of how much Jesus' tradition is in Paul's letters. And if you, if you look hard, um, you can find some really clear echoes 
of Jesus' teaching as they've come to us in the Gospels. And I, I think this is one of those places, this, this language about the Lord's return, about the thief in the night. Um, that probably goes back to Jesus. But it's still remarkable how little of the life story of Jesus Paul teaches. And some have thought, um, famously, Boltmann thought, all that really mattered for Paul is that Jesus died. It, I think that makes, makes very little sense because... Um, or that Jesus died and was raised. I mean, that Idi Amin died and was raised would not be good news. Um, it, the character of the one who gave himself and has been vindicated by God is, is central to the, this being good news at all. Um, so we're left with that puzzle. And um, I think probably we should, uh, and this is where the early form critics were trying to get back beyond our gospels to the shape of early Christian storytelling. I think we probably have to assume that Paul knew a lot of these stories, um, had received them from tradition, taught them as well. Um, but in writing his letters, he was not very often referring to the specifics. He was doing something else. Um, yeah, that's, that's about all I can say. Um, up here and then, yeah, back, back at the back. In our language and culture, <clears throat> if somebody says, what's the opposite of alive, we would say dead. Uh -huh. We don't say fallen asleep. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm yeah. curious in your study of the, the Greek text, which I don't have in front of me, are, what is the Greek text saying? Why are we, why does it almost constantly get translated as fallen asleep instead of dead? Because yeah. I, maybe I'm wrong, but I get, when we teach this, I get that question all the time. Right. What's fallen asleep mean? Well, we all say it means dead. So what is going on there? And then if you get also, that's verse 15, verse 16 of First Thessalonians 4, it you know talks about the dead in Christ rising, and I, mm -hmm. I understand the, the the metaphor, the image of going out to greet him. But then the question I've often gotten teaching this text also is, well, then where are the dead in Christ? So when you get that question, what is your answer to that question? <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. No. Good questions. I mean, it's funny where these questions pop up, too. Um, I was still, a, I guess I was in college when one of my grandmothers was in her final days in, with cancer, and she was um, staying with her, one of her daughters in Wyoming, and my dad flew out there and was able to be with her at the end of her life as well. But when he came back, he told me that, I don't know, it was a chaplain or just someone visiting in the hospital was trying to talk to him about something they were calling soul sleep. Uh, and had a very elaborate theory about um, what happens to the, those who die. And it just struck him as bizarre, but also maybe it was intended to be comforting, but it actually ended up troubling him. So why, yeah, why this language of falling asleep? Um, I haven't figured out how far back it goes. Um, in, in other words, what, what the, whether there are pre-Christian parallels to it. Um, but it does appear throughout different genres in the New Testament. So Stephen, as he's being stoned, falls asleep. Um, Paul uses it um, famously in the passage um, in John 11. Uh, Lazarus, our brother, has fallen asleep. And as often in the Gospel of John, well, if he's asleep, Lord, he'll wake up. And he says, no, Lazarus has died. So why this widespread notion of sleep? Um, I would have to study it to offer a better answer than what I could say right now, which is that I think, at least for 
Paul, it's tied to the notion that whether we live or whether we die, we are with the Lord. And um, so it's a, it's a euphemism for death, but I think it points to death not being the last word as well. And, may, and maybe now that I'm talking about it, maybe it's obvious to others of you, if one sleeps, one wakes up. And if one dies in the Lord, one will rise. So it, it, it maybe have been suggested by that as well. Um, and the second thing was about verse 16, sorry. Oh, the dead in Christ, where are they? I don't know, where is Jesus now? I don't know. Um, a couple years ago, I saw this um, movie, Interstellar. Anybody see Interstellar? I, I saw it because my son's girlfriend is a film major and just said the cinematography is amazing, and it really is, it's beautiful. I, I thought the story was interesting, but the, the piece of it that, that I'm thinking of now is that they're, they're playing with the notion of dimensions beyond our four. Um, and trying then to depict that in four dimensions is, is a real challenge as well. Um, I, I, and I don't know enough math or physics to have anything other than a really ignorant sense that if reality involves more than our four dimensions, then there's no problem with saying the dead in Christ are buried, their bodies are buried in the ground and decaying, but somehow they're with the Lord. And wherever the Lord who was bodily raised is, he's... That's where they are. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I, I know these are the questions that... Um, it's one of the reasons why some mornings I'm just thankful I'm not a pastor because <laughs> I don't have to answer those. Yes. Oh. Is there time for, for Mark? Okay. Uh, is there time for Mark? Yeah, there's definitely... Uh, no, and I, can we give him the mic? Is it a short question? I just wonder, as far as the sleep metaphor, the the Bible of Paul was the Septuagint, and uh -huh. it says he slept with his father, slept with his father, slept with. Uh, maybe okay. he's just using biblical language. Nice, I like that. Uh huh. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Yes. Okay. So there is good biblical precedent for this. Nice. Thanks. So we're glad that you're getting Thanks. educated. Here I am. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so we do get to hear Ross again tomorrow morning. So, uh, and there'll be question time for questions there. Um, one announcement for you is that if you there are going to be CDs and flash drives of all the talks, and if you want those, then you need to order them in the bookstore, preferably today. So uh, this has all been recorded. Well, when I say all, is I wonder if all has been recorded. But there you got to uh, order those. And um, we have a, a pattern, a tradition on Thursday after the morning sessions um, before another mail call and before Thursday night to say thank you to our speakers. So Troy is going to come up and uh, do that. Okay. Is Anne in here as well? She sleeps with the Lord. Yeah. She sleeps with the Lord. <laughs> no, I, okay, well. Troy, she, she has a number of Skype appointments today, and I'll bet that's what's okay. happening. She's no problem. Well, can you stick come on up? Yeah, we want to. Unless she went away. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll get Anne here. She's in soon the thick of pastoral ministry. That's perfectly fine. So we, 
want to thank you for being here for, with us and, and teaching us uh, for Thessalonians this week. We have a gift of uh, a lovely pen made for you by a lovely couple in our um, conference who wish not to be named, but they're sitting right there. And um, uh, it's really a lovely, lovely thing. And we want to just thank you for all the work. And please join me in thanking John or, uh, Ross for all he's done this week. Let's pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this time together in which we have been enriched by a walk through the biblical text. We pray that you would be the one who sets on our hearts on fire as it's being explained to us. And we thank you for Ross's willingness to come to us again a second time, open up the word to us, and we pray that you would bless him now. As he goes back to his family, we thank you for them and his wife allowing Ross to come and spend this week with us. And for his uh, children, may you continue to bless and guide them as they continue to grow and to mature. And then we pray for his ministry at Duke Divinity School. For the heavy responsibility of teaching the word of God to future workers in the church, as well as the means by which he has opportunities to uh, teach undergrads on these travel trips that he's doing. Uh, Lord, use him for the sake of your glory. May you continue to use the gifts that he has for hearts to be ablaze, for hearing and learning and following the beautiful word of the Lord. We thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen.